0: Hey everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another episode of this podcast where we, we talk about a little true crime story, but we try to use it to facilitate some conversation about nursing and healthcare. And today's Bad nurse story is definitely gonna facilitate some interesting conversation. I definitely want to give a trigger warning. Actually, there's probably a couple of different topics in this. you're gonna deal with domestic violence and also I never know how to say this, but I feel like just saying the word is can be triggering for people but we are going to discuss someone that took their own life. So I just I want to put that out there for people. But before we get into our stories, I have to introduce our guest host for this week. I'm so excited to have Roger on the I believe if I'm not mistaken, I think this is might be the first time that I've had a longtime listener on for the show as as my host, my co-host, and also we're going to be featuring you in the Goodner story. So, welcome, Roger.
1: Thank you, Tina. I appreciate it. And yes, I have been a long-time listener. Um, you actually got me through my commute to back and forth to nursing school, and then I, I just you you just kind of were the the first podcast that it kind of just triggered me to start listening to podcasts in general. I was looking for some uh, nursing podcast and you just, I feel like we were always kindred spirits. I told you that once before, that I felt like if we were co-workers (laughs) at the bedside, we would be kind of the troublemakers.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. 100%. (laughs) Well, it's so good to have you on the show. I guess we can get into this story. It's definitely one that I, I, I tend to those, those. For those of you, I know you're going to know what I'm talking about, Roger. I tend to go on Tina tangents sometimes. I do that more when it's particularly disturbing. So I'm going to have to really try to bring <laughs> it. Tina in. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I My brain just goes. Let's talk about something else. This is so dark and dreary. So I'm going to try to keep it on task today. so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile are you looking to take your career to the next level? Consider enrolling in the Doctor of Nursing Practice Program at UC Irvine. The program offers a post-master's track for MSN-prepared nurses and a family nurse practitioner track for those with at least a BSN. Their program, of course, is fully accredited and their graduates are highly sought after by healthcare organizations across the country. If you're ready to take the next step in your nursing career, I encourage you to explore UCI Irvine's DNP program today. Visit nursing.uci.edu to learn more. And of course, we'll put a link on our website and you can access it at goodnursebadnurse.com. On Sunday, September 11th in 2022 in Madison, Wisconsin, officers responded to a report of a dead body at a home in a quiet upscale suburban neighborhood. Upon investigation, they discovered a woman who had been violently physically attacked and that was the exact words of the, the chief of police who did an announcement. She was pronounced dead at the scene
1: in any of the research, did you find who placed that initial call?
0: I think I maybe saw one one article that hinted that it okay. was po- probably him.
1: that always, I mean, when I was reviewing all of the information, I was like, who made that, that first phone call, you know, that, that something had happened?
0: Yeah. I don't think it, they ever actually came right out and said it, but I, that's who was, I think, most likely did. Her husband had already left the home at the time. Officers arrived, and as investigators searched for him, calls started flooding in of a man who was on foot on a main highway they referred to as the Beltway, and this man had been struck by a vehicle. Witnesses said the individual was not seriously injured and that he returned to his vehicle and then drove off.
1: I just, <laughs> I can't so, imagine getting mm-hmm. hit by a car and then, you know, your. You know, you'll, you'll get further into this, but it just, where somebody's mind has to be at this point is unimaginable. I, imagine,
0: yeah. I know. It's, it's very, very sad. So that same man was later seen on I-90 on the city's east side where he stepped in front of a semi-truck. Emergency crews pronounced him dead at the scene. The semi-driver was a 71-year-old woman from Spokane, Washington. She wasn't physically injured, but I'm sure she's going to have long term psychological damage from that i can't imagine
1: i just can't imagine what she was going through at the time and what she continues to go through just the the fact of knowing that she used that he used her as a mechanism to end his life in such a tragic way you know it it, it has profound effects on somebody and i just can't imagine you know what she's going through
0: yeah it's it's so unfair and I definitely empathize with people with mental illness. And I understand that some people can just be in a state where they just aren't, aren't thinking clearly. And obviously, if you're not thinking of your own life and not thinking of the life of your loved ones, it's not going to be at the front of your mind to be caring that you're going to be doing, you know, long-term damage to somebody asking, you know, basically forcing them to be the mechanism of your, of you ending your life. But my goodness.
1: And this is just one of the the first impacts, I think, of this whole act that brings people into the, this story that was not even, it was, you know, necessary of, of just having her unwillingly participate in this. Again, is just a, a tragedy, one of the tragedies, one of many tragedies in, in this story.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So investigators determined that the woman who was deceased at her home was physician assistant Jessica Ray. And the man who had stepped in front of the traffic twice was her husband, Jason Ray, who was also a physician assistant. Whenever we talk about kind of a different healthcare profession, I always like to just kind of interject a little bit, just for people who aren't familiar. For one thing, I think most people probably know what a physician assistant is, or a PA as we call them, but a lot of people will say, physician's assistant. They put a little apostrophe S at the end, and that's not accurate. It is a physician assistant. It is a... Uh -uh. Not at all. They do have to work under the oversight of a physician, but they're definitely a very independent, you know, profession, and they work very much in the capacity of a physician, they're just limited in what they can do.
1: Yeah, and a lot of states, they, they are synonymous with nurse practitioners. They can, in some cases, work independently, where there is independent practice laws for nurse practitioners and PAs. Where I have encountered them within the hospital is being more involved with, you know, being second person during surgery assisting the physician and then they they will do all of the follow-up care and discharge information and 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 you know we as as nurses would interact with them on that level where they would be on call and, and we would call them for orders or letting them know that, you know, lab values are out of, you know, norms and and get additional orders and all. So they do have prescriptive powers, the ability to write prescriptions, discharge people, give you orders for additional therapies and and all. And I think even here in South Carolina, they are now able to like order home health. Therefore, while nurse practitioners and PAs were are not order, able to order like home health services and, and things of that nature. So now they're able, they kind of expanded that a couple of years ago where they're able to do more ordering care outside of the hospital.
0: In the state of Tennessee, there are some physician assistants, if they're trained, can actually do closures. They can do some minor procedures, like actual surgeries um, and procedures, and they will close up like an open heart. They, that's, as you said, assist the surgeon. Very, very important Profession, I think, very impressive and prestigious profession, and I'm really happy to have them. We need them. We have a shortage of physicians in this country, for all types of physicians. We have a, a huge shortage. It is a big problem. In case you guys didn't know that, it is a big problem.
1: It's a very intensive program. I have friends that um, have recently went through becoming physicians assistants, and it's a very, which ho- very hopefully it
0: would be, considering if, all they get to do.
1: Yes, yes. Absolutely, and it's a different track than becoming a nurse practitioner. In a lot of cases, I think these, they're not necessarily required to have a medical background, but they do have already in a, a degree in science and ha- and have that background. But it's it, it is definitely a very stringent program to get through, and and you have to really, I, I think you really have to want to be a physician's a physician assistant to 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 pull that task off, because it is it is very rigorous, very very rigorous, and a full time. Sure. I mean, you can't do anything else. I mean, Absolutely. it's hard enough. You know, I I know a lot of nurses that worked part time or even full time going going through nursing school, but uh, becoming a PA, I, I just it's, it's full time. You're you're there, so you have to have that that support outside of just of you of of being able to support going through through that, that type of program. Very rigorous.
0: Yes, absolutely. So to get back to our story, this uh, press press conference was held by chief of police, um, by the chief of police who called the deaths a murder-suicide that was domestic in nature. And they, at that time, were not announcing who it was. So you can imagine their people were concerned. And he did indicate there wasn't a threat to the community at that time. This was a huge shock to the friends and family of Jason and Jessica Ray. Police said there had never been any calls to the home for domestic violence. No indication from people on the outside, you know, of the family. There was no indication there were any kind of problems whatsoever. So it just came as a huge shock to everyone.
1: And I think there's a lot of times that people with mental health. Uh, issues do suffer in silence, and it is unfortunate that our healthcare system is uh, structured in, in a way that has always kind of placed that stigma out there that healthcare or that mental health issues is something outside of the healthcare realm. I think back, you know, to the 40s, 50s, and 60s of how mental health was treated. It, you know even before then, it you know, was not a part of the, the medical system per se. And it's just tragic that people feel like that they have to suffer in silence and, and you can't get help. And quite frankly, it's expensive to get help. I mean, it's expensive to get medical care. And a lot of insurances are, are not paying even half of what it costs to go see counseling. You certainly, I, 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 I'm sure that we're no different than a lot of places in the United States where e- even if you're needing to see a psychiatrist there are such huge demand for psychiatrists that you know you're 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 very limited in getting in to see even at that level so you're you're seeing counselors you're seeing psychologists nurse practitioners for for your counseling which there's nothing wrong with that a lot of times that that's where everybody needs to be But if you are at the point where you're needing, you know, advanced medications, maybe hospitalization, it is very hard to get those services. The beds, inpatient beds are very, very limited. They're very expensive. And then on top of that, you have the stigma of being hospitalized inpatient and, you know, nobody wants that. And that's unfortunate.
0: It is very unfortunate that somehow we've ended up here in this country. It's... when it comes to mental health, it's very, very sad. And it, it's not going to get any better unless, you know, we have to turn it around somehow. You can't just keep burying our heads in the sand. And I think, you know, there is a lot of, a lot more conversation that, that takes place, very similar to what you just said, you know, talking about the stigma. But at the same time, I think if, if our, I I feel like our government's going to have to step in and get, you know, get involved, you know,
1: you know, after COVID and even before COVID, you know, there were certainly uh, challenges to the healthcare system. I worked with a population of underserved individuals um, at one point and, you know, the care was there. Um, You had to really, really struggle to get there though. You had to have advocates on your side to get you headed in, in the right path. And so a lot of the care is there, but you have to have patients to get it. And that, that's unfortunate that a lot of people in underserved areas, their medical needs are very extensive. And to be able to wait 60 and 90 days to get an appointment to just have primary care established, that's, that's horrible. And we, we're, we're better than that as a society in the United States. I feel like that we're much better to, to be able to offer health care to everybody that, that needs it for, for a number of reasons. I mean, we, we all want productive members of society, and we want everybody to have buy-in to what you're getting. There's nothing ever free in life. And but you, if, if you can't, if you can't function due to a physical or mental illness, you're you're not doing yourself, your family, or society any good at that point.
0: That's exactly right. That is exactly right. Well, according to family members, men, mental health definitely played a role in this murder-suicide. The Jason Ray's sister, Jessica Shack was her name, did say that he had struggled with depression for more than 20 years. And she said for many of those years, he kept it a secret and struggled with depression behind closed doors as just said many people do. She said there's such a a stigma associated with it. So he kept a lot of that from my mom, from my dad, from me and our close friends. So despite seeking help and having a strong support system, Shaq said her brother's depression worsened over the last few years. She said that their father had passed away three and a half years ago. And then she said, "You know, you add in COVID nineteen and the stress of him being a healthcare provider, and that was very hard on him too. There's so that's such a loaded statement.
1: If you worked in healthcare, you recognized the stress. If you were, if you were somebody with janitorial services, you, you were stressed. If you were food service, you were stressed. If you were a bedside care provider, nurse, respiratory therapist, aide, didn't matter. There were stresses. I remember." transporting. So when COVID first started ramping up in the area that I'm in, they opened, we we have a hospital that was long-term acute care. And so they ended up moving those patients to other facilities and using that facility, both for ICU COVID patients and general medical COVID patients. And so we were taking people from our main hospitals, to recover at this facility and I remember being at the height of one of the days that um, I saw this like the sickest of the sick and I remember sitting there the transport times were 20 minutes and um, 30 minutes and I remember sitting there going if I'm going to get COVID it's going to be today uh, because these were people that were so sick and I remember having one patient I walk into the hospital and I'm like, he's going to need to be intubated. There's, you know, I. he's just so sick, you know, sat, saturations were in the low 80s. And, you know, we have a new appreciation of where oxygen levels uh, were acceptable in patients. And you just look on the faces of, of the nurses that were at this facility, that's all they did day in and day out when they showed up for work was, and it was kind of, it was a volunteer position where you Volunteered to go work either full-time or part-time or pull a couple of shifts there. I will say that the staff that was at the facility had to be the best of the best. I didn't know them personally. I become, I knew them when I walked in and saw them and, and saw their smiling faces through all of the tragedy that they saw, you know, people being discharged to hospice and the stress that went along with it, but it was, it was a struggle. And I would just love to know what happened to that full-time staff at that facility, if they're still at the bedside, or if they've just said, I've had enough. The PTSD, I just can't imagine. I just hope that they are reaching out. Our hospital system has support for its staff. There was, you know, we we're coming up on a mental health milestone, I think, the suicide month, prevention month or it's coming up I believe I saw something just recently and so they they're they're sending all of that information out of you know and they constantly say remind everybody that there are internal resources for you to seek mental health help so that that and I hope you know I've been there I I, I, I have suffered and and at times we'll still suffer from depression and anxiety I think they go hand in hand I have been to counseling. Thank goodness that I have been to the point where I have have been able to receive care and been able to afford getting care. I will occasionally still bounce back into counseling because now I know what my triggers are. I can tell. Okay, it's it's getting. Time for me to have a conversation, and that may that may only be two or three sessions, and it kind of tanks my top, my, my you know, it tops my tank off, and and I'm I'm good at that point, and I know that I don't feel alone, and and that I've kind of just expressed it to an unbiased ear that helps me process it, and and I'm good, and I'm today I'm in a good spot. My my former peers and my coworkers, they know that I'm available. 24 hours a day, or at least I hope that they know I'm available 24 hours a day. And when I sense that somebody is struggling, I, I I stay in contact with them just to make sure that they always know that somebody out here understands the struggle. I don't certainly walk in anybody's shoes. I, don't, I had my own to walk in. But I know the steps that it takes and that it's happier on the other side. But I, I struggled for a, a lot of years not knowing my own mental health and understanding that, you know, kind of a, I think as, as men, it's always been kind of drilled into our heads that it's a weakness that you ask for help or that you cry or that you get mental health. And, and I saw that where we're really starting to change that, where I've seen law enforcement and fire departments and EMS agencies start to reach out and say, you know, this is a problem. We, we lose a lot of people in public safety to suicide. And that's, that's unfortunate, but I hope that we're slowly starting to gain some traction and at least people know that there's help available. I know in South Carolina, we have a statewide organization that is sponsored by the fire service that is there to help out in tragic situations. And I look at this situation and this story that we're talking about those responders we, we talked about the truck driver that played a role in in, in this tragedy but then I, I look at the the law enforcement and the fire EMS people that that had to respond to this incident that had to deal with this tragedy and then to find out you know this was a murder suicide you know it, it plays a role on, on in, into furthering PTSD that I, I that may be a triggering thing that, is going to rear its ugly head in a couple of years that, that you just don't know. And that, that sort of, you know, I have all, I had all of this baggage from years and years and years of working pre-hospital care that, you know, I, I didn't own it was always there, but it just, you know, it wasn't until I was triggered that it manifested itself and that I was thinking about self-harm and, and really suffering from depression and, Thank goodness was able to get help, and you know, and I'm here today, thankfully, that you know I, I am, I'm much better for the for the path that that I walked. I am much stronger, much better. But then I know what my triggers are. I know I know when it's time to say, okay, I, I need to need to get help. It's time to talk.
0: We all know that when we're taking any medication or supplement, dosage matters, and it's important to take enough to get the desired result. For example, only taking a 10 milligram Tylenol might not help with your headache. Well, the same is true for CBD. If you try a low dose CBD product, you may not feel anything. But it's not the CBD's fault, the dosage is the problem. This is why CBDstat only makes high-dose CBD products that actually work, and now their products are getting even stronger. CBD Stat is happy to announce that they're launching a new extra-strength version of its highly popular topical products that have 7,500 milligrams of CBD. affordable. And don't forget, all you healthcare workers out there get a special additional discount to help keep you strong. Just head to cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare and find your new secret weapon. That's cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare. I really, really appreciate uh, you, Roger, for giving that testimony about your personal experience because it, it takes a lot of courage to talk about those very personal things you know that have gone it's one thing to talk about you know another person I've I know that I've talked about a lot on on this podcast some things that I've been through and it's not easy to do that it's not easy to kind of expose yourself that way but it is so helpful to others other people need to hear that they're not alone in, in these experiences you know we, we talked about PTSD but we haven't really I think there's there's a lot of people that don't really understand what PTSD is. I think a lot of people see sort of like the Hollywood version of PTSD being like the the veter- the Vietnam veteran who is who comes back home and then has flashbacks and wakes up with nightmares and that is a that is a type of symptom that can happen with, with PTSD for sure. But it is it's not the only it's not the only thing.
1: Absolutely. I have, I have been around long enough to to have taken care of some Vietnam veterans, and they would always say that, you know, they suffered from, you know, shell shock is what they always, you know, kind of referred to it years ago. You don't run across many of those folks anymore, but I distinctly remember, you know, late 80s taking care of a large population, and that was the first time that I, you know, I was a young adult, and that was the first time that I really started having any idea of kind of mental health struggles that, that people had. And and then when we moved more into trauma care and, and the post-traumatic care of people's mental health and kind of putting a face to a name, so to speak, and, and you start seeing people coming back from the Gulf War, and then then you start relating that to, and I, and I kind of think that maybe we, recognized it more after 9-11 and realizing the impact that that had on law enforcement and fire and EMS, the long-term care, not only the physical structure, struggles that people suffered after that with cancer and respiratory diseases, but there was a lot of mental health issues that came out of that. And I, and, and I want to think that that was the kind of the start of recognizing for public safety that you know, there's probably PTSD in public safety, and now we're looking at that in nursing. Uh, nursing is starting to address that, the post-traumatic stress from COVID-19, taking care of, of people at the bedside. You, you just really can't appreciate the struggle that nurses went through of not being able to, you know, and I, I want to think that as nurses, we, we got into nursing and healthcare because we, we liked the human side and being able to relate to people and just that physical touch of holding a hand in somebody that is struggling with their health and having that barrier in place of gloves and a mask. Nobody could see me smile. I'm a big smiler. I, I love to hug. I mean, my, I would discharge my patients and they would like, oh, can I have a hug? And I'm like, absolutely, I'm a hugger. You know, families, I I, I just... You know, when that barrier is there, I didn't feel like that I was serving a portion of what I was doing as a nurse. I mean, it's like, what am I doing? I, I can't. I, you know, they can't see me smile, and that was important to me. You know, and I and, and I, I appropriately will crack jokes whenever I I kind of learn my patients, and, and I'm sure you experience this too. You know where how you can kind of relate and, and talk to. To patients and families. And I would always kind of cut up with my patients and, and try to get them to smile. And, you know, when you have a mask on, you couldn't tell whether they Realize that you were joking or not, and and sometimes I was like, okay, you know, you can't tell it, but I'm smiling and I'm I'm joking with you, <laughs> you know, and so I would really have to even tailor what I was doing as a nurse and and taking yeah. care of people with with yeah. a mask on and barriers in place. That's that's hard, and it 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 would weigh on on anybody, but much less when you're a nurse trying to to be in that role and and. You've always taken care of patients one way and now all of a sudden you're like, I've got to have all these barriers in place and I don't have immediately have that, you know, you've worked in the ICU environment, you know, when a code is called or, or a co-worker says, hey, I need help in here. You immediately run into the room. You don't even think of your own really personal safety or anything. And now we have had these carts on the outside and you're having to gown and glove and mask and, and goggles. And, you know, it's like my patient is coding and I cannot get into the room to them. And you're physically, you know, the, the stress that, that that weighs on somebody's body of knowing that, you know, you're, you're still 90 seconds to two minutes of getting in that room. And you know that that, uh, what that is, you know, a patient without oxygen is doing their heart is not beating. And you, you multiply that time and time and time again that you're just experiencing that trauma. You know, thank goodness nursing is starting to recognize it. I just hope that a lot of health systems are on board with that and are taking care of their nurses. I I feel like the health system that I work for is. There's certainly always room for improvement, but I I do feel like that we we just finished our our employee engagement survey that we do every year. Probably most health systems do them. And, you know, I, I feel proud of where I work. I'm surrounded by a lot of great people. My manager, all the way to our now vice president, they really monthly do a check on people and you know that's the first thing in our town hall meetings and our unit councils that come out is like how are you doing how is our employees how are how are things going for you please take care of yourself so i I do feel that 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 we're in a good place i just hope that nationwide there's more health systems doing that i'm i'm afraid there's not and that's tragic but you know at least some are trying and and we are there
0: and I think it's important for people to be aware, you know, of the signs, you know, the people who were the people working at the bedside, who, who were in the middle of all of that, just like what Jason Ray went through, I, once it all kind of everything cleared, maybe we're just kind of going back to business as usual. And and it, it, I think PTSD can kind of sneak up on you, and and maybe not even recognize that for, I for me, after everything sort of cleared. And I was working on a floor where there really wasn't a lot of COVID. In fact, there wasn't a lot of COVID in the whole hospital, but it was patients weren't even allowed like if they had COVID on this floor, because it was a surgical floor. And I remember every now and then, you would get a patient that had to be in isolation, because I mean, they end up on the floor and then get diagnosed with COVID or, or something like that. And just the dawning of the the gown, just putting that on. I remember just having this horrible, horrible feeling come over me of like dread and just and just feeling like, why are you feeling this way? There's this person is okay. They're like, what in the world? That is what PTSD is. It is it's it's because you went through this traumatic event and it had this huge impression on your psyche. And so when you are just going through your everyday life, you know, there are things that can just trigger that same feeling. Your brain is going, hey you don't get out of here. This was not good for you before you need to get away. And so it's trying to dredge up those same feelings to try to get you to get out of there. Because, you know, your brain recognizes that this was a really horrible, damaging thing that you went through. Also, a, another aspect of, of PTSD is the fact that you going through this really traumatic event, you know, the the adrenaline rushes of of just being in that just the you know, healthcare, there were a lot of people that stayed home. And of course, healthcare workers, we went to work anyway. And there was a sense of, I think, pride associated with a lot of that for a lot of us. I know I was proud to be able to go and do something and feel like I was helping, you know. And I did that willingly and and happily, and I enjoyed taking care of people. But there's a I think there's just uh, all of the hustle and bustle that goes along with all of that. And then when everything that does settles, and you're back to business as usual. That's you know like with uh, veterans that come home from war, and they come home and every everything is just sort of like flatline. Everything is just sort of like normal. They don't have these ups. They don't have the adrenaline rush, and that causes a severe, deep depression. It's kind of sounds ridiculous, but it that is exactly what it is. And you, if you're recognizing yourself just being in a deep depression after going through a traumatic experience, that you you could very possibly have PTSD, and you should be seeking help for it.
1: And I, I, I hope that that folks in in healthcare, whether you're pre-hospital or in-hospital, it really doesn't matter, that you're recognizing that we are headed back into a time where COVID numbers are, are going to be increasing, and we have flu, RSV, that is already out there. We're, we're starting to see increases, and that these could be triggering events, and that, like you said, putting on that gown, I, I was called to the bedside just a few days back to do an ultrasound guided IV and it was on a, on a COVID patient and just to have to apply all of the protection again. And this, this lovely person was in such distress you know it, it it was just tragic there was a fa- there was actually one of the things that was different that struck me a, a little bit different was you know during covid nobody was allowed in the room other than the healthcare providers there was actually a family member in the room during this and i you know it was a little bit odd because i'm like what how are they feeling about this because you know it's kind of commonplace for us to, for the isolation and and how we're going about our normal routine business in the ICU and taking care of folks. But this was probably the first time that they experienced what it's like to see a COVID patient and their family member in an ICU and the steps that we have to take to protect staff and and all. You know, I could only imagine, and he was—he was trying to help, and you know, finally the the patient's primary nurse was like, "Look, I understand that you're trying to help us, but you really are being more in the way than than you're you're helpful, because it really—I I mean, it, it was a situation where they were just trying to comfort their loved one, and it was not allowing us get in to to do what we needed to do, because you can't be in there all day. You can't be in there for long periods of time. I mean, the primary nurse had, had certainly other patients to take care of. I could have been pulled out at any moment to uh, do a transport or whatever. And, and, and actually, I was. I mean, we had another patient up there that was going to be transferred to another facility that was on a ventilator that I'm like, they're like, okay, we've got a bed. And I'm like, well... Let me know if you don't, you know, they were calling in, they, they were going to try to get a, like a, a midline or something put in and they were calling in staff to do that. And I'm like, well, I will call you when we get back. Cause it, this was going to be several hours to see if you get IV access. And, you know, but just the whole, the whole part about like you said, this triggering. I remember putting that on and and going, you know, here we go again. This is just so foreign. And I even asked her, I said, how many COVID patients are y'all seeing now? And she said, you know, prior to today, you know, she said we were seeing a couple every day. And this is probably about a 20, they're probably almost a 30 bed uh, med surge ICU, just general ICU. And she said, you know, now we're like one a day, one patient a day. She said, we'll walk in and we'll have a patient in ICU. This is out of a probably 400 bed hospital. So I don't know how many was just general medical patients that were not in ICU, but if we're already starting to see that, you know, I'm just fearful that it's going to be a rough fall and winter. And I just hope people recognize what may be triggering to them again and start reaching out for help early. Uh, If you have free counseling, call them and establish care and just say, look, you know, I don't really have anything going on right now, but I live through COVID. I want to know that you're there in case I do have a situation where I'm going to need to talk. Because when you need to talk is not the time to try to establish the care. And I think everybody, those types of services, whether you're employee help, team member services, whatever they want to call it, you know, reach out to those folks, reach out to a coworker that you trust and say, look, you know, it was it was rough on me through COVID. And I'm starting to see that again. And I just want to know that if I need somebody to talk to, can I talk, can I call you, you know, if it's in the middle of the night or, you know, most people are absolutely you know, would be there, and a lot of times it's just that proverbial talking me off the ledge. I just need, I just need to, I need a sounding board. I need to get this off my chest. I may need to cry a little bit, and then, then I can go seek the professional help, but at least I'm not going to go out here and do something that is going to be permanent, Um, and that's the tragedy in these situations, is the, the hurt, the long-term hurt folks are looking for to relieve that and a lot of times they can't see any other way than self-harm to do that to either release the stress or to to get rid of the that that stress or, or the, those feelings and you know I I can say that there is you, you can you can get to the other side of it and it's you can get there it's just knowing how to get there and those are the steps those are those are hard.
0: Yes, you definitely have to be deliberate. Yeah, you got to be deliberate about it. Jason's sister did suspect that, well, she, they don't know. They really don't know what happened in this particular case. She thought maybe there's some sort of psychosis or something that triggered him to do what he did. And she said that the deaths of her sister in law and her brother are devastating, and she definitely doesn't want to take away from what happened or justify it. I think she's trying to be really careful about that. I can understand that for sure.
1: Well she's trying to protect kids too. You know, you don't want things out there that the you know, the internet is forever and they're gonna be curious. I don't know how old they are, but at some point they're gonna they're gonna see this information and I'm sure she's thank you know, thankful for her that she's being very metered about what she's saying about them.
0: She said she was hoping that by speaking up she might be able to help at least one person struggling with mental illness and I think that's the reason we're having this conversation that in the hopes that people listening to this may seek help in some way if they find themselves in a situation where they suspect they might be you know suffering from depression or anxiety or or worse she said, know that you're not alone. Seek the help that you need. Be forthcoming and be honest with your therapist and psychiatrist. She said that's very important as well, but also be honest with your family. They are there to support you through anything. And she said it's okay to ask for help and to okay to reach out, and it's okay to say that you have a mental illness. So Jessica Ray, there's you know, not a lot of information out there about her. As we said, she was a physician assistant. She was featured on the website from Dragonfly Hot Yoga from 2019 as Middleton Yogi of the Month, just sort of like it was a really nice write up in there. And she explains why she loves yoga. But at the bottom of the write up, she says she gave a big thank you to her husband who is supportive of her attending her weekday classes that she would take at 5 30, which was right around dinner time, which she said meant that he was at home with the kids during dinner time. And so, you know, in reading that, just kind of reading about I was just trying to look and see if there was anything I could find about her. I like to talk about the victims as much as possible.
1: I I just wonder if he was able to mask uh, how his feelings were. I mean, I'm sure she understood, you know, maybe a certain level of depression. But, you know, if people aren't aren't speaking about that. And you can mask that even from your spouses. You know, I didn't, I was not one, you know, my my spouse knows, you know, certainly what I I, I do for a living and, and, and understands that. But her being a, a physician assistant also, you know, she's very relatable to what the profession is. So he may have been able to really mask what was going on and even even to the point of you could never dream that he would have done this. Yeah, there were struggles and they may have had marital problems or, you know, we could, we could go all day probably just thinking about what, what was going on in the home that people didn't realize. But she probably never did realize that he would do this. There's no signs that he was ever violent towards her that was ever documented, you know, other than I'm sure that they had the general run-of-the-mill arguments that couples do.
0: That people do. Yep. Right. And,
1: but never to go to the point where he would harm her and, and himself. I mean... So like you said, you never know what the what the trigger was. I also think sometimes that we get so wrapped up in who we are with our professions that they kind of become one. I've learned to separate that that, you know, I'm an individual and I'm a human and that happens to be a nurse. You know, nursing is not not my, you know, whole personality. You know, I try to when I go to work, I give my all to to my profession when I clock out, I've learned to to leave that there, you know, I and and not take that that with me. And that's hard. That is a skill. That is not easy. And that has only been in the last couple of years that I have been able to to learn that skill. I don't know if that's just through my years on this earth or counseling, combinations of both, but I just realized that, you know, I can't bring that home. I can't bring that into my relationship. I, I know I know the sh- just the struggle, the stress of of that in the relationship, without even saying it, it, it plays a role. I mean, your whole attitude and being home, it is. there's just no place for it, and it's hard. Um, and I just wonder if he had just gotten so good. I mean, it, it sounds like he had struggled for years at masking this, that it's like, it's like a tea kettle. I mean, did it just finally explode? It got to the boiling part in his brain that just you know that he did not see any other recourse and there had to be I mean you've got kids I mean if nothing else everybody always think I, I, I don't have kids but you always think of the repercussions of your actions towards your kids and it's like you know if I do this what happens to my kids I mean obviously he wasn't even thinking at, at that level
0: yeah they did leave behind three children and it's not clear whether the children were at home um, at the time of the attack but there, really was, there wasn't really any mention of, of them being there at the press con- conference that was held. There is a GoFundMe that had been set up for the children. And an update was posted in March of 2023 by Jessica's sister, Rachel. And I want to read it just because it's it very eloquently describes the devastation and heartbreak that's caused by mental illness, and it it definitely it helps to sort of explain the the devastation that you you talked about earlier. Those that repercussion that that domino effect that happens when when something like this takes place. She said, six months ago today, on September eleventh, two thousand twenty-two, our worlds fell into absolute darkness in the wake of Jessica's death. We were left here in this world. Void of her light and beauty, in a state of absolute shock and disbelief, in the weeks that followed and in the rawness of our grief and pain, we cocooned as a family, trying to protect ourselves and each other from the outside world. I was overwhelmed by the weight of caring for our family while shattered by the inexplicable loss of my only sister and my person. I had no idea if my soul would ever heal, unable to understand how the dark side of humanity, could come so close to home. Reflecting on those moments, I have visions of falling down a dark void, only to be able to make out a pinpoint of light. And then you all showed up, talking about the people who donated to the GoFundMe. Each and every one of you, in the absence of Jessica's light, you all shined brighter, and the world slowly started to feel less dim. Whether you know our family or not, you reached in with a hand and pulled me and our family towards the light. In those early days of the fundraiser, the kids would watch the uptick in donation totals on the GoFundMe site. Their souls were lifted. They felt cared for and supported by their community. Your donations sent a powerful message of love and healing, and the words you shared with our family about your own grief and sadness, support and hope, and Jessica's impact on your lives were so warm. Warmly heartening. And of course, there are the practical needs you all supported through your donation, which have truly allowed us to focus on the care of the children without having to worry about the finances. Your donations have allowed the children to continue in all their activities, celebrate special birthdays, enjoy fun activities as a family, and assist with a down payment for a larger home to accommodate our now seven children. And there have been so many of you who have showed love and kindness in other ways, who have sent us gift cards, dropped off groceries, cooked us meals, helped us move, carted my kids around, prayed for us, planned funerals and celebrations of life, donated your professional services, and so much more. We are left so humbled by your generosity. It has taken me six months to be able to have the strength and focus to formulate these words as an expression of our deep gratitude. It's a sign that we are finding our footing, resolved to courageously move forward, holding onto and shining Jessica's light, beauty, and grace onto the world, we can do so only because of you, you who have one by one pulled us back into the light. You have filled the dark void. You who have restored our faith in humanity and healed our souls. You who have blessed us with your expressions of love and support. Despite our world being so profoundly impacted by darkness, you all have reminded us that this world we share has so much more goodness, kindness, and love than darkness. I Thank know. you from the bottom of our hearts <laughs> and souls.
1: Much that love, Rachel. That is so from the heart.
0: Ooh, I can't believe I got through that without crying. I'm so... oh that's that was just so perfect and i so m- much we can learn from that about the devastation that it, it causes but also the how important it is to reach out in the smallest effort by by friends family and community to help those people who have gone through something like this it's huge it's just huge anything that we can do to help
1: we we talked about the wide sweeping re- repercussions behind this incident their, their patients suffered because they suddenly lost somebody that they yeah. confided yes. in and had a personal relationship. Mm-hmm. It's hard yeah. to find a provider that you can trust, you know, to tell your most intimate things to. I mean, you're, you know, they're, they're, they're seeing you, you know, they're one of the only other adults in your life that is probably seeing you naked. You know, it's, it's, it, and so... I don't know what areas, if they were in primary care or they were doing hospital-type um, care, but their patients lost a friend and a provider, and, and that's, that's sad.
0: Well, we definitely want to remind you to, to get help, and we will put a link at, in the show description if, if you need help with mental, mental illness. Of course, Suicide Hotline, we'll put that on there as well. So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So you know I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. And use the promo code GNBN to get $50 off your order. And that's echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get $50 off your order. If you're like me and you don't want ads interrupting your podcast flow, you can access our episodes ad-free just by becoming a patron. You can also have access to bonus material like episodes being released early, the video footage of me and my guests recording the episode, and a brand new podcast that's offered exclusively to our Patreon subscribers called Breakroom Conversations. Your support will really help us to keep the podcast running smoothly. To learn more, just head on over to our website, goodnursebadnurse.com, and click the link to become a patron. So now, I guess we can get into the good nurse portion. So, Roger, what I really wanted to do was to talk about. First of all, I definitely just love to kind of have someone that that I can highlight who is a nurse and a listener, somebody who sent me a message just saying, "Hey, about to graduate from nursing school," and that that I, you know, I had been encouragement to you, and I wanted I want people to understand that when you. Are, when you listen to me and send me messages like that, that is a huge encouragement to me. And I appreciate it so, so much. It definitely goes both ways here. And I love you all so much. So Roger, I want you to tell everybody this. I know you've hinted to it a little bit about this interesting job that you have as a critical care transport nurse.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Tina, again, for having me. And And ever since we first had our conversation about me coming on the podcast, you know, I've been so excited and, and I haven't, I really haven't told anybody other than you know my, my husband that that I was going to actually be on, on a podcast. you know, you're my celebrity, you know I, I can cross it off my bucket list now that I actually you know we, we've talked before you know we, you had the the pod it was the Netflix series on on the nurse and, and we did that that segment and that, that was that was a lot of fun. It's taken an interesting path. You know, I always had an interest in, in nursing. I got my start as, uh, as a paramedic and uh, I've been a paramedic for a lot of years to the point where I actually reached a pinnacle in my career that not a lot of paramedics can say that they can actually retire from our profession. Paramedics typically move on to other fields. They become PAs, nurses. Some go to medical school. Some change jobs completely and say healthcare is not where I'm at. I got my start in the early 80s. I was very fortunate that I had a mother that was very in tune to her her children and I was a struggling teenager that hated high school. I had failing grades, did not really have a a true direction and and what I wanted to do, but but she knew that I had an interest in EMS and You know, we had this show back in the 70s, Emergency, and that was my go-to after coming home from school. I would watch that show religiously. I had an uncle that was a volunteer firefighter, and so she knew that I had this interest, and there was an opportunity at her job where they were having a community CPR class, and she came home and asked me if I wanted to take CPR. And I immediately was like, yes, 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 I would love to love to do that. So it was an even, evening class, and the instructor happened to be a, a paramedic that was at in a neighboring county where I was taking the class. And with him was a couple of medical explorers, which is part of the Boy Scouts of America, the explorers program that allows youth to go in and kind of experience different professions, and, and this one happened to be with EMS, and they still exist today. There's a lot of explorer programs out there that allow, there's law enforcement, there's fire, there's EMS programs that people that have interest, kids that have interest, and I think they start around 14 that can kind of experience, they, they get invaluable training and experience, which is what I did. So just the mere fact of me being able to take that CPR class introduced me to the world of EMS. And, being you know, they they asked her they're like, hey, you want to come back to the station? And, you know, of course, I was a big old geek at that point of like, oh, yes, I want, you know, I've never actually ever been in an ambulance. So, you know, I would love to come back and actually see what it is. So I started hanging out with them. They invited me to be a member of the Explorer Post. And with that, they started with training and you know, I would do ride-alongs. I would be in the back of the ambulance with the paramedics, and I thought that was just the best thing in the whole world. And that just completely changed the trajectory of, of my life. I think that that God always had that part of my heart where I was just a caring individual, very empathetic, but I needed a, an outlet for that, and and that that certainly provided that that trajectory. You know, I was. Like, like I said before, I was a very poor student. I didn't have good study habits. I was struggling to get through high school. So for me to finally have this direction and, and really want to, to to go to school, to go to college, to, to learn a, a profession, it really helped. You know, I knew I had to buckle down and, and kind of have things differently in high school. You know, I, I learned differently, and I, I wish that I was in high school in today's time because how I learn would be accommodated. Back then, everybody got the same stuff, whether that was your way of learning material or not. So I I really struggled, but I had a, once I was able to graduate high school and and I started taking college level courses, I had instructors and teachers that that really, you know, I was embarrassed, you know, I I couldn't spell. I'm so horrible today, the dictionary is my best friend. Actually, Google is now and but they understood they they're like you know there there's 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 no shame in where you're at it's understanding that you can you can learn those skills and and it's just going to take a little extra time for you and and so i was able to to get through paramedic school I was a nineteen year old paramedic. I was I started my last semester of high school was my first semester in, in college, which I never under, I, I still don't understand how I, I got to, to do that. But when I graduated high school, I set for my EMT boards within about the same month. So that summer I was off, did you know my part time job, started paramedic school that fall, You know, and a a year later, uh, I graduated paramedic school and set for boards, and I had just turned 19 when I set for boards. And in the state of Florida, which is where I grew up, you had to be 18 to do EMT or paramedic, as long as you were 18 by the time you graduated. So as a restless you know, teenager, I, I kind of moved around a little bit. Every year or two, I would try, I kind of reinvent myself. So I was able to do a, a lot of different things as a paramedic, working in one environments, transport environments. I was one of the first paramedics that the hospital at the time, it was Methodist Hospital, they, hired, they started hiring paramedics for full practice in, in the hospital, in the ER. So I was able to experience life working next to, to nurses. And that was my first kind of one of my first times where I was like, hmm, nursing is really interesting. It's different than, than being a paramedic. And I, I was always in awe at, at how nurses were in, in charge of everything, they were in control of the patient experience, even, even back at that time. I was able to move into a flight paramedic role at about, I think I was 20, 22 or 23. So I'd had three to four years of 9 one experience at that point. Uh, I was able to work out of a trauma center. So it was actually another step up to get to that level as, as a paramedic. And then I have a partner who is a flight nurse, and so that was really where I learned to appreciate the, the synergy of a nurse paramedic team, of having the experience in taking care of, of patients in that environment. You know, I was kind of, you know, in the early 80s, paramedics were still very new. Some nurses kind of still look down upon us as, you know, just a, a technical not even really a part of healthcare, you're that ambulance driver that brings us patients. But there was always that that division. But then once I uh, was able to work in that environment, I worked for a very progressive helicopter system. We were based out of a, a level one trauma center in Jacksonville, Florida and I work with some of the best nurses in the whole world. Unfortunately, a lot of them have passed uh, because they were 20 years older than I was. You know, they had been around for a very, very long period. So, you know, I'm in my 50s, and a lot of people that I looked up to uh, have now passed on, and and that's that's very sad to think about. But they... They really molded me. Um, our, our program director, our chief flight nurse, was a nurse practitioner. That was the first mm-hmm. time I'd ever heard of a nurse practitioner. I'm like, what is a nurse practitioner? I don't even know what that is. And she went to nurse practice. She got an MBA and, a, and her nurse practitioner at the same time. I'm like, how brilliant do you have to be to do that at the same time? And when I figured it out, I'm like, you know, I knew what a master's degree was, but I'm like, how do you do that? And so she really pushed me to be a, a better person, a better paramedic. She didn't really treat her nurses any different than the paramedics. The paramedics were nurses. We were essentially interchangeable in, in her mind. And, you know, I, I had, you know, I, I, I talked about the struggles that I had with writing and, and the English language and, and, you know, still struggling Uh, at that point. But I saw an opportunity. We had a a monthly newsletter that came out from the flight service that went out to all the hospitals and EMS agencies. It just kind of talked about, it was educational. It was, you know, it had a lot of different content in it. And the person that was the editor of that monthly newsletter, I think we we lost, they left or I'm not sure, but for some reason, I yeah, I had the wildest hair up my butt that I could be the editor of the newsletter. And I went to her and I'm like, I want to do this. And she said, you want to you do this? And I'm like, yeah, I want to do this. This You know, this would be fun. And she's like, it's yours if you want to do it. And, you know, she would be, she was truly my editor. I would put together all of the information and I would write some of the articles and I would get it back. This was Got even before computers. So she had red marks all over it, correcting, you know, my grammar and, my, <laughs> and I'm, but I'm like, I was learning and being in that academic, because we were a teaching facility and being in that academic environment, it really pushed me to go back to school and, and work on getting a degree. So I got an, my associate's degree in EMS. And then after that, state of Florida did not recognize the National Registry, which is the National Certification for Paramedics. But I decided that that was a pinnacle that I wanted to to have. That was something that was unique in Florida that, that not a lot of people had. So I would always I would always struggle, or not struggle, but I would always kind of reach to 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 be the next thing to to try to figure out. What else can I do in my profession that can va- kind of validate who we are as a profession and, and me as an individual and kind of learning and growing? So I set for the National Registry exam, which has served me well. You know, I, I heard once from a philosopher that humans are like a ship and a, uh, a ship with sails, a sailboat, and that. We're, we're on our path as long as the wind is in our sail. But when we lose the wind, we kind of drift and we don't know what we're doing. And you have to have that power of the wind to kind of get you back on that course. And as humans, we've all kind of been destined to, you know, we have free will and, and we're given the ability to make certain decisions in our, our life. But we're always at our happiest when we're on the path that we are supposed to, to be on. And so I always look at, uh, you know, I, I wasn't always a strong believer in, in predestiny or, or any, any of that. I, I didn't grow up um, real religious. You know, I was introduced to religion in, in my early life, but never did practice as as an adult and so I didn't really understand you know like you're predestined or you're you had a destiny to, to meet but I did re- recognize and and unfortunately it was in my later years that I was always the happiest when there was I was going on the path that I was meant to be on and I always struggled the most when I went against that it was almost going against my grain and so I look back at my trajectory and all of my EMS career and my profession. It really provided me an opportunity to get to where I am today. People find it amusing. I actually got accepted to nursing school three other times in my life, and I had to turn them down for various reasons. You know, life happens. I, you know, I would talk myself out of it. You can't do this, you know. Why why can't, you know, and it it just, it, it was a, it was an opportunity that I would turn down and I just didn't understand why, but looking back on it, I realized it wasn't the right time. It was, it was not going to be the opportunity for me to be successful. And it wasn't until I got to the point in my career that I'm like, hmm. You know, I can retire because when the retirement system that I was in, you only had to reach a certain number of years, and ours was 28 years, and, and I had reached that, and I'm like, well, I'm, I'm here, I'm young, I should take advantage of this, and maybe I should, you know, go back to school, and maybe now is the opportunity for me to go back to nursing school. So, there were some prerequisites that I needed to take. COVID hit. I remember sitting in English class and our instructor, we were talking about, you know, this virus that was coming out of, of China and that it was hitting Europe and it was starting to hit Italy and, and I think we were starting to first have the first documented cases in the United States and and nobody I certainly, you know, I'm sitting there oblivious to what this is actually going to mean. I mean, we had been through H one N ones and, you know, all the different flus that were coming over and we would prepare for them and nothing would ever really happen to any of that. We would always do the preparedness. And I'm sure that a lot of people that were in the 90s probably remembers a a lot of those, you know, there's this strain of flu that's coming and it could be very deadly and, you know, it never would manifest. And and I would think back to that and it's like, oh, this is probably just going to be another one of those situations where we're going to have this happen and boy, was I wrong. So, you know, we all suffered through the COVID. Uh, I went through nursing school during COVID. I felt very sorry for my peers, uh, especially the ones that did not have healthcare experience. And the simple fact of just trying to learn a skill remotely on a computer is just disheartening, I would see. You know, I, w- I would watch some of the students, they were trying to learn how to tie a tourniquet. You know, my instructor is like, she would have the camera on the on the tourniquet. And she was like, no, tie it like but this. It's probably
0: and, c- coming across backwards because of, oh, yeah, my it gosh, is. that's a nightmare.
1: Yeah. So, I mean. And then you know we were going into the lab that we were only allowed to go maybe six at a time, and then we had to be you know twelve feet apart or whatever it was. So we really couldn't interact with each other, and we were having to do skill checkoffs, and you know it was it was just it was a hard time. Nursing school is hard to begin with, and then we kind of you know it kind of got where you know we were on the downward side of of, of one, the initial COVID surge and. Things kind of loosened up a little bit where we were kind of going back into the class. We were able to interact. We had, you know, mask on at that point. The freeing experience, though, of just being in a classroom with the instructor, you know, it's hard there, there's a synergy that goes along with having your classmates with you in class because, I always, you know, when you're behind the camera, you know, behind a camera, you're on a computer, I'm just going to sit here. You know, I'm not really going to ask questions. I'm just listening. But in a classroom, it evokes thought and, and you know, it's easier to ask questions and it's you don't feel like it's an imposition. And then that question mm-hmm. has another question and it, it piques the curiosity of another student and go, but wait, I didn't understand what you just explained there. Can, so you, can you explain that differently on this side? So just being back in a classroom was very freeing and, and having that connection with, with my, my peers at that point and, and finishing out nursing school and seeing people grow and and getting their first jobs as a nurse and there were people in my nursing class that were closer to age than than me and then we had a few that were you know high school and this was this was going to be their profession and then we had some that were middle of the road they were LPNs or nursing assistants that were coming back into to get getting their RN and I had an opportunity to become a nurse extern at the hospital where we did clinicals. I wasn't sure that that was a program that that I needed, but I talked to some instructors and they were like, I think that would be a wonderful opportunity for you to kind of discover yourself in nursing because I really didn't know what type of nurse I wanted to be. I didn't know where I wanted to be. I, I, I knew what I didn't want to do. I didn't want to be in the emergency room. I didn't want necessarily a job in Pediatrics, though, the NICU had some some interest, a little bit of interest, but I knew mostly it was going to be adult care inpatient at the bedside. I just didn't really know where and, and what type of emphasis that I wanted to, to place. So, with the nurse extern program, I was able to really rotate through different departments. We would do a 12-week rotation. I worked telemetry floor, which I fell in love with immediately, but I fell in love with the nurses that, that were there uh, more than the floor because when we, we had a shift of nurses and I realized I didn't like it as much that I realized I, I liked the nurses more, working with the nurses more than, than the floor. So, but I did like the patients. I mean, it did, it did. You know, I I have a strong cardiac background, so reading rhythm strips and EKGs and all, I, I'm like, well, you know, maybe I need to be focused on something that can kind of uh, utilize my previous experience. Because being a paramedic, I don't care what anybody says, being a paramedic is different than being a nurse. You bring some. There's some skills that cross over, you know, medication administration, starting IVs, giving injections. Yeah, there's some technical skills, but other than that, nursing is Different. We don't, you know, you don't do admissions. You don't do patient education to the level that nurses do. You don't have the stru- stress of coming back in and dealing with that patient's psychosocial family dynamics day in and day out. So it's just different. And so that's where I was trying to learn where I could fit in. You know, where could my technical skills work the best and complement my, my nursing Skills. And I knew I wanted to work at the bedside because I knew I needed to immerse myself in that nursing environment so that I could really solidify those nursing skills and know that like the back of my hand, like the paramedic that I was, you know, I'd go to work as a paramedic and, you know, I was very comfortable. I didn't worry about, okay, what, what call am I going to run today? Is it going to be a pediatric cardiac arrest? Is it going to be a trauma? You you know, I didn't worry. You, You reach a point in your career where you're just, those, those things don't, you know, they're, they're, they don't, they don't stress you as much as early in your career because I've experienced being in those situations. So I just like, you know, okay, it's another day at the office, basically. But now I'm in nursing. You know, in nursing school, you're not really taught how to change a bed. I mean, you, you get a little bit of it. There's just things that you don't learn in nursing school. You learn the technical aspect of nursing and what they expect you to know to pass the boards. But there's a lot of, you know, the hands-on stuff that, that you learn at the bedside. Right. You learn with other nurses. And the nurse extern program allowed me to start kind of formulating not only my nurse practice, but the type of nurse that I wanted to be. I knew the type of care that I would provide. That was a given. I mean, I, I didn't have a problem with that. I'm, I'm very interactive with people. I'm very comfortable with assessments and and dealing with families and personalities and all that. That didn't that didn't stress me, but I, I did want to be challenged. So I I had an opportunity to work in the ICU as a, an extern. I chose to work in what we call our cardiac intensive care unit, which is people probably would probably more relate it to a cardiovascular intensive care unit because our primary thing was open hearts. The hospital that I worked for was one of the big things that they did was open heart surgery and so i worked 12 weeks there and again fell in love i I felt like i had a home the nurses were just awesome i mean i I, I remember my first shift uh, the, the nurse's name is devin if she listens to this she'll know immediately she was the first one to greet me and she was a night shift nurse and had been there a number of years, and here I am bouncing into the unit for the first time. Had never been there in my entire life. I had somebody even show me how to get there because it was in a different tower of the hospital. You kind of had to go through the basement to kind of get to it. And it was the ICU tower. Had never been over there. And um, I bounce in, you know, and I'm like, I'm your extern. And she's like... <gasps> Really? We get an extern? Oh, my goodness. We haven't had externs in forever. Well, because of COVID, they had cut it out. (laughs) And so they hadn't had the extern. She was like, let me show you around. And I'm like, okay, you're a little bit chipper for... First thing in the morning when you should be going, you know, you're going home. You've been here all night. Most night shift nurses are not this bubbly and everything, but it was so welcoming and gracious and, and all the nurses there, you know, they, that, you know, they, they laugh at me now. And I said, you know, y'all intimidated me a little bit when I, when I first started here because they are, they are such a great group of nurses. I still stay in contact with them. They taught me how (laughs) to be a nurse. They taught me technical skills of how to be a nurse But they, you know, they they taught me just globally how to how to be a nurse. And they demonstrated that. And we just had such a a close family that I'm like, this is maybe where I would like to end up. I had one more area that I wanted to kind of experience, which was the NICU and pediatrics. Since paramedics do take care of kids and and infants, in a previous life, I had helped out with some uh, NICU transports as a paramedic. Um, We had a NICU team, which was Nurse RT, and the paramedics would go along with them on the ambulance, and we would kind of just, we were their gophers, you know. There ain't nothing wrong with saying that. I mean, that's what we were there for. They were the technical uh, expertise in, in taking care of these little tiny beings and that fascinated me. There was a guy that was one of the only male NICU nurses, and he did a lot of transports. And he was like, "Have you you know, he knew I was in nursing school, and he was like, have you considered coming to the NICU? He said, you would be great. He said, you know, you could work up to, to being a NICU transport nurse. And I'm like, I'm not sure, you know, the NICU is where I, I would like to be. But who knows? So I did a stint. We were a lower level NICU. Most of our babies were there just to kind of grow and gain weight so they could go home. We didn't keep, of course, real sick babies or anything. Any, any sick, sick babies were shipped out to the, to the high level nurses, either to the upstate in South Carolina or the Midlands, or a lot of times to an academic facility. If they had cardiac issues, they would go down to the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston, Emory, or either Duke in North Carolina and those those would get flown out. I mean, they were sick sick babies. There was a lot of a lot of patients that came in delivered because it was a very rural area, they would come in, they would not have any prenatal care. So these were babies that were being born that nobody had any idea that they had any congenital problems going on. There was no ultrasounds to rely on. There was no prenatal care. So these babies would come in stressed. You know, if anybody has ever you know we're all taught labor and delivery and and kids and meconium staining you know when babies are born under stress you know I was taught that as a paramedic and signs and it is nothing like the textbook says i had one that came in that was like that and i'm like wow the textbook do this a complete disservice because this is nothing. And they're like, yeah, it is nothing like the textbooks <laughs> teach you. And so I left that rotation dealing. With, so we did a week at NICU and a, and a week on the PEDS floor, which was just very, you know, they weren't sick kids. They were there either for like overnight stays, asthma exacerbations, things like that. You know, people that generally were turning around with, with care. Any six at kids or of course, also shipped out. And so I, I kind of came back around. We had to choose our last rotation. Uh, I was down to my last semester in nursing school, which was going to be my last rotation of the extern program. And so you had to kind of declare where you were wanting to be. So I, I decided to go back to the cardiac ICU. I thought that that was probably the best place for my skills. You know, these were sick, sick folks, but they were certainly, they had a, a path to getting better. You could date every day, anybody that's worked open heart, it, you know, it's, it's very, you, you know that there is a definite path that by and large, most patients recovering from open heart surgery, you know, day two, day three post-surgery, you know, they're going to be at this level. And so that really uh, gave me an opportunity to really work with the same population to learn my teaching skills because there was constant education Uh, every day. It was re-educating old topics and it was introducing new topics. You know, you're not going to be able to lift your arms above your shoulders. You can't lift things when you go home. I'm not going to be there. You've got we've got to get you independent. It was teaching family how to take care of of their loved ones when they got home. What was appropriate, what was not appropriate, you know. By and large, our population of patients that were going through recovery of open heart, you know, they would participate, they would want to get better. You had a few that just didn't want to work the program and it's like, I I can't make you do this. If you don't want to get out of bed and walk, you're gonna get pneumonia and you're just gonna be here for another two weeks. You know, it's and they don't believe you and they get pneumonia and they stay with you, and then they're sick of seeing you, and it's like, quit pulling on you know. I don't want to do this no more. But I, I really, I, I fell in love with Open Hearts technically skills. I think, you know, I, I see memes all the time where you know they talk about you know ICU nurses and CVICU <laughs> nurses and our attitudes and everything, and it's kind of, I mean. It is a little bit true. I mean, I had somebody respond the other day. It was like, yeah, I'd posted a meme about CVICU nurses, and he was like, yeah, I distinctly remember a floor at the hospital where we kind of saw those type of nurses, and I just started laughing. And because technically, I mean, you you're pulling sheaths. I mean, big, you know, you you're pulling yeah. these pencil size catheters out of people's arteries and and you're having to monitor for bleeding and knowing that people can bleed to death in a matter of of minutes and you know being at the bedside when physicians are doing this and and it it, you know it's 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 the next level I mean it 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 truly is the next level of recovering people coming you know because we would do pre-op post-op recovery for hearts so we would start educating Mm -hmm. our our if they were inpatient, we would get them the night before, which is nothing that everybody doesn't experience. But, you know, you would start your education at this point. This is what you're going to experience the next morning. This is what's going to happen. You know, we're going to give you two baths. We're going to shave you. We're going to, you know, this is what's going to happen over the next couple of days. And then you reinforce that the next morning, families coming in, you're reinforcing what's going to happen today. You know, the OR comes down, the heart team comes down, the anesthesiologist comes down. And our, our heart anesthesiologist, he is a Jim, I mean, he's been doing heart anesthesia for 20 years, and the man is brilliant. I don't know why. I shouldn't say that. I don't know why he's at this hospital, but I mean, he can do anything he wants to do. I mean, he's the best of the best, and in my book, I wouldn't have any problem in the world of, of him being my anesthesiologist in in anything that I needed anesthesia for I me. Mean, he's just very, very smart, but he's down to earth. I mean, if you had a question, he would teach you. If you didn't know something. You felt very comfortable in asking him, look, I don't understand how, you know, Neo works with controlling a blood pressure or whatever it was, you know. So when he, came ba- when he came back with patients from the OR, he would make sure that you were comfortable with, you know, okay, this patient responds to volume better than they do, you know, increasing their, their, their Levo or whatever it is, I mean, he would be there for you, and he wouldn't leave until he knew you were comfortable with what's going on with the patient, and they were stable, and and the surgeon would be there, and it was just this big, you know, we were working in concert in taking care of this person that is absolutely at their most vulnerable. I mean, they're on a ventilator. We're waking them up. Uh, They've had their chest open. We've got, you know, 10 drips running. There's chest tubes running everywhere. Families coming in, we're having to educate them, you know, okay, this is what you're going to see. This is what's happening, you know, and they have to develop a level of comfort with us. And and the good thing is, is that they see us day in and day out. You know, if I took care of, of... an open heart today. When I come back tomorrow, I'm going to, you're going to see me and, you know, and this is what's going to happen tomorrow. This is what I'm doing tomorrow. So I really found a place there. I mean, it was, I, I had a wonderful opportunity yeah. with supportive nurses. I'll tell this one story and then I'll move on. I was, it was one of the first days that I was on my own. I think it was the first open heart recovery that I did on my own after orientation. And orientation was four months or or so. We didn't have a residency program at the time. it had been stopped because of COVID again. And just as a side note, go through a residency program. I don't care if you're a paramedic that had as many years as I did, go through the nurse residency program. It's going to, it may not help you start an IV, but it's gonna help you with time management and documentation and all the all the great things mm-hmm. of nursing that takes a good deal of to learn. Go through a nurse residency program if it's available to you. It will serve you well for the rest of your career. So I was there and I was, you know, I had a patient and her blood, she'd been stable for a couple of hours and this was late afternoon and her blood pressure started dropping a little bit. And I'm like looking, trying to do my assessments and reassessments and like, you know, trying to troubleshoot why her blood pressure would start trending down. And not only the art line, but, you know, her NIBP was starting to trend down and I'm like, okay, well, her MAP's still good and then her map stops starts dropping you know we're 65 and 60 and i'm like okay you know and i start trending her and that doesn't work and i've titrated some medicines and that's not working and i get to the point where i'm like i don't know what else to do so i step outside the door and there ain't nobody around there's no secretary at the desk there's no other nurses there's nothing so I go back and I reassess my patient and, you know, she's still kind of doing the same thing, but, you know, no better, nothing. So, you know, my heart starts racing a little bit and I'm like, you know, you know, you're starting to feel that pressure on your shoulder that I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm the nurse. I'm I'm supposed to know what to do in, in this circumstances. And, you know, and I go back to the door and I'm looking down the hallway and I'm looking because I'm right across from the desk and all of a sudden I see this head peek out behind the desk. There's a bank of monitors and there's a printer and all. And it was it was my charge nurse. And she said, I'm watching you. You're fine. Get back in the room. I'll be there in a minute. <laughs> and, you know, I was just like, OK, I had a little bit of relief. And she came in and she's like, you're fine. Your map is fine. You're doing everything that you need to be doing. Just let it ride you're, you're getting worked up over nothing. This is normal. Just let it go. And I'm like, but there was nobody there. (laughs) I felt like I was alone. And she was like, you wasn't alone. I was watching you the entire time. But the value in in that, that she trusted me to kind of flounder a little bit, trying to learn, okay, your self-reliance and that, you know, Go back to what you know. Go back to your troubleshooting. Go back to your your assessments. You know, go back and look through everything to make sure that you've addressed all of the issues. Um, and so that really, you know, it was the it was the turning part for me of kind of being starting to be comfortable. With being the nurse in that role, and being self-reliant, and you know when I come into the ICU with you know thirty years of experience, pre-hospital, being in the back of an ambulance, working a code by myself in a lot of circumstances, to being in this environment where I should feel okay being independent, but I am certainly not comfortable at all. And having her there, we still laugh about it today, and I still tell that story, especially to new nurses coming in. I'm like, you know, don't be afraid to ask for help. Oh, gosh, And yeah. secondarily, fall back on what you've been taught. You've been taught by some of the best nurses out there. They, they teach because they know and they prepare you for these situations, and your peers have prepared you for this situation, and they're not going to leave you in there by yourself, whether you think you are or not, and like like mm-hmm. she said, I've been sitting here watching you the entire time, and we had cameras in every room, and she's sitting there watching, and she's laughing at me, I mean, you know, and she wasn't going to let anything happen to the patient, and the patient was just fine, and we were, you know, the patient recovered without any, any problems or whatever, it, but I still laugh about that t- today.
0: Well, Roger, thank you. So I really appreciate that, the, that whole personal um, experience. I think it helps people, to especially new nurses, to hear things like that. It's very encouraging. It also, I, I think all of us as new nurses can remember times, you know, when we've been, when we're just like, there's no one around. Am I the big person here? Am I the grown up that has to figure out what to do? So I really appreciate that. Yes. Well, we're going to record another episode, or a different episode of our Break Room Conversations podcast at some point, and we're going to talk in more in depth about your role as a critical care transport nurse. And I'm so excited to get to do that; I cannot wait.
1: So that's that's more reason to tune in for that episode and to subscribe to Tina's channel is to come in and learn more about being a critical tr- care transport nurse and how that is different from being a paramedic, being a flight nurse, what that environment is like, and, and what we deal with day in and, and day out.
0: Thank you so much for coming on the show, Roger. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Tina, for having me.
0: And you guys can go to our website at goodnursebadnurse.com and become a Patreon member so that you can get the episodes early. We, we release them a week before the a few few days, like early the, the week previous that it comes out, and also ad-free. So would love to have you. And we're definitely going to have our Break Room Conversations podcast starting up pretty soon. That's going to be also released on our Patreon. So love to have you. And i also love hearing from you guys. You can email me at tina at And we're on social media at goodnursebadnurse. And of course, I always have to remind you, even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse.